Good morning. Hope you had a good week. We, a uh, couple things that I, I want to say before we go any further. I want to recommend a book to you. It's called The Faith-Fueled Coach. It's on the book of James. It was written by Brian McKenzie. And uh, it's, a, it's a self-study guide is what it is. So it uh, would give you the opportunity to go through the book of James and uh, recall some of the things that we've talked about, but also gather truth from the Scripture on your own uh, in, you know, in respect to this, this very powerful book that God's used in my life. I can promise you that as I've made my way through it. Uh, God always does more in my heart and my life than He ever does in the hearts and lives of the people that I teach. And so... Uh, I, we want to give you the opportunity. The book is $10, and there is a sign-up sheet in the back. We're not just going to order uh, 7,000 of them, though I'm sure Brian would prefer that. No, we're just not, we're, we want to order the ones that we're actually going to use. And so if you're interested in that, if you don't have $10 to, with you today, well, there's a place for yes or no under paid, and you can just put no, and you put your phone number down there, and we will find you. <laughs> no, no, we, we're not going to be that mean. But uh, let me recommend this to you. James is a pivotal book in the New Testament in terms of putting legs on our faith. And uh, I would I, I just encourage you to, to get involved with that. Uh, this, is, um, this is actually the, the last study. We can jump into that now. I guess this is the... the we'll be continuing our studies. This is... Uh, almost the last, and we'll be continuing our studies in the book of James in a series entitled Advice from a Brother You Can Trust, and uh, this is part, this is part, um, you trust me when I say this is part 35, uh, and it's entitled Saving People from Death. It's going to be kind of a superhero theme, sort of a, a message this morning, Saving People from Death. Um, I just want you to know that if you, if you go to Life Group and you see the curriculum, it's actually going to say part 345 because, I don't know, I didn't delete. Anyway, on the curriculum it says part 345. Don't be worried that you've missed most of the book of James because you only remember like 35 or so. But uh, we'll be studying today, we'll be looking at James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 as that said to us for just a moment there. And uh, we'll look at the advice that, gives there, that James gives us there. Um, this, is, this week we'll be looking at the last passage in the book of James, 5, 19, and 20 is where James ends, and, and uh, next week we'll do a short review as well as seeing if we can put some legs on all the stuff that we've learned from the book of James this year. It'll have to be a brief review, uh, and, and, and then there's, uh, there's also uh, an additional thing. I want to lay out a, a bit of a challenge for you and an encouragement as to what putting legs on your faith looks like when it comes to the book of James. Um, after we, that week after that is uh, the week before Christmas, and that will be uh, our, our Christmas message that, that week, so we won't be looking at James then. And, uh, and then the week after that is our end of the year message where we try to look back over the year that was and try to sort out in terms of what we've learned, what we've actually gained, what kind of progress, how we might have grown along the way. Uh, so we're almost done with our time in God's Word in 2021. We have, we have a bit left yet, but by the way, I, I hope you've got one of these. I know yours isn't as large as this. I, I, in view of my age, they always hand me the big stuff. Um, 
but uh, these, these two evenings are going to be a really, uh, a really profitable time for us. December 20th at 6 p.m., come and join us for some singing of Christmas carols. And uh, if, you've, uh, if commercialism has crept in and gotten in your way, it'd be a great opportunity to just uh, take a deep breath and sing some songs together and, and remember what the reason for the season actually is. And then on December 24th, we're going to have our usual service. But I, I'm, I can tell you right now that there's going to be a, a surprise uh, built into our usual service. We'll do what we always do. We'll tell the Christmas story. But I think you're going to be very pleased at, uh, at, at an idea that we've had for this year. And, uh, and we hope it, uh, it, it's not going to put anybody, any of you guys under pressure. Don't worry about that. We're not going to have you telling the story and that sort of thing because that would, that would ruin Christmas. I mean, that would just, that would flat out ruin Christmas. So it'll be our usual service, but it will be with a, a slight a slight difference, a slight twist, and, uh, and I think that you'll, uh, you'll be glad that you made a point to join us. That starts at 5, and like Brian said, we do everything we can to have you out promptly at 6. Let me say this. Uh, I forget whether Brian mentioned this or not, but before the, the, the Christmas Eve service, we're going to have hot cocoa and cookies for anybody that likes hot cocoa and cookies. If you don't, God bless you. I don't know what's wrong with you. But um, we're, we'll have hot cocoa and cookies, and, and so come early, enjoy that, because they're going to clean it up at 10 minutes to 5. They're going to put it all away. If you're here at 5.55, well, it's going to sound unchristmassy, but you won't get hot, hot cocoa and cookies. And the reason for that is we want everybody in here at 5 o'clock because of something that's happening at the very beginning. We want you to hear, and these chairs will actually be all gone. There'll be blankets down on the floor. If you're too old to get on a blanket on the floor, then we will leave some chairs out there. But realize what you're saying about yourself when you decide to sit there. Anyway, all that to say, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's nearly Christmas. It's, it's really, really close. And we're looking forward to our time together. Last week, <clears throat> we unpacked James chapter 5. I still don't have, still don't, can we, even PowerPoint doesn't work. All right, I'll, I'll pray for those guys back there. They, they kind of go into panic mode when this happens because they know that I'm, I'm not going to panic. I'm just going to talk to you about it. Um, last week, we, we looked at the story of Elijah as Elijah was, uh, was defeating the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. We actually left out the most dynamic parts of the story. We actually left out the most dynamic parts of the story. Uh, that, that part where Elijah, you know, called down fire from heaven and it burnt up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and, and, and the rocks. I mean, it just, it must have been a, an amazing thing to see that left behind this smoking crater that displayed God's awesome power. We left out uh, the most dynamic parts of the story. We left those untold, and we focused on the more, dare I say it, the more mundane parts of the story, the parts that talk to us about Elijah's prayer life. Now, James tells us that Elijah prayed, you remember that, and the rain and even the dew stopped for the space of three and a half years. And, and then all that dynamic stuff happened there in the middle in that showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on the side of Mount Carmel. And, and when Elijah had won that smackdown, that battle, and proved that Yahweh was the one true God, 
Elijah hiked to the top of Mount Carmel. Perhaps you remember that with his servant. And Elijah prayed that God would send the rains once again. Of course, when we look at the actual story in 1 Kings, we find no record that Elijah prayed at the beginning of the story to stop the rain. It, it just doesn't say that in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, uh, we have no clue that Elijah prayed to stop the rain. We only know that, that he prayed to start the rain up. Uh, so at the beginning of the three and a half years, he prayed, and, and uh, then there came that, he, that the, the rain would stop, and then there came that dynamic fire falling from heaven thing that went on, and, uh, and, and now we know that, that that event was bookended by prayer, by earnest prayer, what James calls earnest prayer. In other words, Elijah prayed earnestly that the rain and the dew would stop, and the rain and the dew stopped. And then three and a half years later, Elijah prayed earnestly again that the rain and dew would start, and the rain started once again. So just to keep short accounts, Elijah prayed, the rain stopped. Elijah prayed, the rain started up again. And in between was three and a half years of drought. That tells us that Elijah understood God, that God's people had turned their backs on God. And so he prayed that the rains would stop. Elijah prayed that the rains would stop so that that would lead to the moment when there was this confrontation there on Mount Carmel and, 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 and people could turn back to God. And when Elijah had proven that Yahweh was the one true God, he prayed earnestly that the rains would start again after all of that. And uh, we don't know for, uh, from 1 Kings, at least uh, for first, the beginning of 1 Kings 18 and, the, and in, in James, we don't know what the earnest prayer at the beginning of the, of, the, uh, of the thing looked like. We only know what the earnest prayer at the end actually looked like. He said that, and you saw that just briefly. Can you back up one there? There we go. He said that... Uh, According to James, he said that, that, that Elijah got down on his knees. Elijah got down on his knees and prayed, and prayed before God. Uh, he put his face down to the ground. And once he was in that posture, while he's down on the ground with his face to the ground, once he's in that posture, he prayed and asked God to start the rains. And then he sent his servant to look toward the, the sea, you remember, up there at the top of Carmel, for any changes in the clouds. You remember that story. Servant came back to say, despite the way Elijah had prayed, the servant came back to say that there was nothing on the horizon that would indicate rain. So Elijah, according to the scripture, said, huh, I, uh, I really thought that God was going to start the rains again, but uh, obviously he's not. And and then he looked at his servant and said, hey, how about we, uh, we, we crack open a, a couple of brewskis and, and binge the, the, the Walking Dead? I, I think that's what it says. Anyway, I would need to check that. But, but why not? Why not respond like that? He had been down on his face and praying earnestly, praying intensely that God would start the rain. He was asking God to do something he knew God intended to do. God had already defeated the prophets of Baal, and the nation had turned back to him. And at that point, Elijah had prayed earnestly. He had prayed that the rains would start up again, and, and he'd assumed that God would start them up again. He had reason to believe that. But for some reason, God apparently ignored Elijah. So maybe God wasn't going to send the rain after all. I mean, think about it. If God was planning to send the rain anyway, 
Why didn't he send it when Elijah asked him the first time? After all, Elijah had been working his tail off, and, and he prayed and asked God to start the rains, and God had obviously refused. So what would be the harm in just taking a few days off here? Because, well, this God stuff that Elijah and his servant had been involved in was pretty tiring, and it had lasted three and a half years. And now we're supposed to see the end of it, and yet here, well, there's no end. Think about the cadence here. The nation had turned their backs on God, and Elijah had prayed and the rain stopped. And now that the nation has turned back to God, Elijah prays again, but the rain still didn't start. So what does God want Elijah to do to get the rains started again? What's God have in mind? What's the plan? Well, the answer to that question is clear because we know how it all went down. After Elijah's prayer, the servant came back to say there's nothing on the horizon, right? You know that part of the prayer. So Elijah prayed a second time, in the same, no, back that up, sorry. Elijah prayed a second time in the same posture and with the same intensity. And the second time brought no change and no answer from God. So Elijah prayed the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh time. Well, the first, the sixth time with, with the same intensity and the same lack of results. And finally, when Elijah prayed the seventh time, you remember the story, he prayed the seventh time, the servant came back and said that if he, there's this little cloud on the, on the horizon that's about the size of my hand when I, when I stretch out my arm like this, you know, if I compare it, which doesn't sound to me like a very impressive result for all of Elijah's labor in prayer. It just doesn't sound that impressive. But Elijah believed that that was the answer that he was looking for from God. So he sent his servant to go tell that nasty king Ahab to get himself, get his butt down off of the mountain before the rains, the torrential rains set in and stopped him from heading there. Elijah's faith survived six, six non-answers to his prayer. And then on the seventh time of kneeling with his face to the ground, he gets this little tiny indication that God is going to do what he said, and, and that's all that he needs. He sounds, he sounds battle stations again on the remaining unbelief in Israel, and he actually ends up running, running about 40 miles and getting where he's going before King Ahab with his chariot gets there. It's, it's just another cool part of the story that I didn't tell you. And I'm left here to wonder, how my prayer life compares to Elijah's prayer life during that three-and-a-half-year period. And when I find God not using me the way that I, I wish he would, when I find God not speaking to me or through me the way I wish he would or moving through me uh, into the lives of others, and when it occurs to me that God's not answering my prayers the way I wish he would, I wonder if all of that can be traced back to the appalling lack of intensity in my prayers. I'm left wondering if God worked more powerfully through Elijah than, he wor than he's worked through me because Elijah prayed more powerfully than I do. Is there a key here that, that I perhaps have been missing out on? Keep in mind that last week, James made the point that Elijah was a human being just like we are human beings. In, in other words, Elijah was not a superhero. He was just a plain old nobody like we are. He put his... He put his cloak, well, maybe he put both legs into his cloak. I, I don't know how it works. But anyway, he got dressed like we get dressed. And, and uh, I, listen to me. 
Elijah was not a superhero, but he did have a superpower. He had learned to pray with intensity. That was his superpower. Elijah prayed with intensity and a dogged determination to reach the heart of God as he prayed in keeping with the will of God. And as he prayed, Elijah's heart began to resonate with God's heart. Their their heartbeats matched. And when that happened, what God wanted became the thing that Elijah wanted. And Elijah became increasingly confident of what God was going to do. That's why he responded with such faith at that little tiny indication. And I believe it was that more than anything else that sent Elijah to his knees the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh times as he repeatedly asked God, to send the rain. I believe that's also the reason that Elijah knew the rain was coming the moment he saw that that little tiny cloud. Elijah's heart was in tune with God's heart as he asked God to restart the rain. Remember, Elijah prayed earnestly and intently that God would restart the rain at the end of his confrontation with the prophets of Baal at the end of the story. And that's how Elijah prayed when it came time to restart the rains. But we have to realize that at the beginning of the story, Elijah initially prayed that God would stop the rains. Have you thought about that? Did you think about that last week as we looked at the story? Elijah had prayed intensely that God would stop the rains. Just so that we're clear here, at the beginning of the story... The people of Israel were going about their business, planting and harvesting their crops, and God was sending them the the rain. But, But because the people of Israel had turned their backs on God, Elijah began to earnestly pray that God would stop the rains so that the people of Israel could experience the famine and thirst that comes with a drought. In other words, at the beginning of the story, Elijah earnestly prayed that God would stop the rains so that there would be a drought that brought famine so that God's people would turn back to him and earnestly seek him. So the bad news is that Elijah prayed that God would cause the thirst and famine of a drought so that God's people would turn back to him. doesn't sound like a very nice thing to do to people, does it? The good news is it worked. It worked. Elijah asked for this thing from God, and God used this thing to turn the nation of Israel back to him. As God started up the reins, as, as, as Elijah requested. And, and in the process of considering that story, we learned something about the power of earnest prayer. James calls us back to that story. That's why we went there. He calls us back to that story, and he reminds us that Elijah prayed Earnestly. In other words, if Ernest doesn't, you know, if you know somebody named Ernest and you can't imagine praying earnestly, uh, let me give you some synonyms here. Elijah prayed sincerely, seriously, solemnly, intensely, and strongly. You could choose your own synonym, use it at, at, as you please, because earnestly means all of those things. Elijah was serious about asking God for these things that he was requesting. And when Elijah prayed earnestly, something as natural as the rain stopped for more than something as natural as the rain stopped for more than three years. So that makes me want to ask a question of you this morning. And now, yeah. Who stopped the rain? Was it was it God who stopped the rain? And a lot of people are doing this. Or was it Elijah that stopped the rain? And a lot of people are going, 
Was it God who stopped the rain or was it Elijah who stopped the rain? Now, I know the knee-jerk reaction to that is, well, it was God that stopped the rain, and if you say it any other way, Jay, that just feels wrong. But I wonder if perhaps there's more going on in the passage that we looked at last week than we had anticipated, than we realized. Remember the story. Elijah prayed, and we don't know how many times, according to the record, he prayed that the rain would stop, and it stopped. And then Elijah prayed seven times that the rain would start up again, and the rain started up again. So who stopped the rain? Was it God or was it Elijah? Because when God, when James begins to talk to us about this, he says Elijah prayed, but it doesn't say, and God stopped the rain. It says Elijah prayed and the rain stopped. So who stopped the rain? Was it God or was it Elijah? Well, maybe there are other questions that we should ask before we jump into trying to answer that one. Here's one. Could Elijah have stopped the rain without God's help? Absolutely not. Could Elijah have restarted the rain without God's help? Absolutely not. Could God have stopped the rain without Elijah's help? Absolutely. But, listen, God didn't stop the rain without Elijah's help. Could God have restarted the rain without Elijah's help? Yeah, absolutely. But God didn't restart the rain without Elijah's help. That was God's choice. So what's going on here? I mean, if God was going to stop and restart the rain anyway, then why did he insist that Elijah pray so intensely that the rain would stop and then restart? I mean, God could have done the whole thing on a timer, right? You know, just turn off the sprinklers for three and a half years because his people had turned their backs on him and then set the sprinklers to turn on automatically when his people returned to the one true God. I think that's kind of the picture that we tend to have of, of God and the way God actually works. And, and I'm sure, you know, the whole automatically turning the sprinklers back on, I'm sure God has access to that kind of technology there in heaven. Certainly he does. Why did Elijah get involved at all? Why is he part of the process? And why did God insist that Elijah break his back in prayer over something as natural as the rain? Maybe part of the answer to these questions comes from something that that we already learned from other advice that James has given us. Look at James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask God. Remember when we went through this passage? When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, there are things that God wants to give us and things that he wants to do for us, and often God gives us those those things and does those things for us without our ever asking him to do those things. But sometimes, listen to me, Sometimes God doesn't do the things he's willing to do for us because we don't ask him to do it. James said that at the beginning of chapter 4. And now here at the end of chapter 5, this thing that we've been looking at, here at the end of chapter 5, James tells us about Elijah and something that Elijah asked God for, asked God to do. And and James tells us what Elijah asked God to do, but he also tells us how he went about asking God, how intensely he asked God 
for the thing that he wanted him to do. Elijah prayed intensely seven times as he asked God to stop and start the rain. And I promise you, there's a lesson for that in, for all of us. In that, there's a lesson for all of us. And that lesson has everything to do with the fact that God sometimes waits. Listen, God sometimes waits for us to ask him before he'll take action on our behalf. And we know that there are other times when God does things for us without our asking him to take action on our behalf. But what makes the difference here? Well, do you remember the story of Job? Remember Satan complained to God right there at the beginning? Satan complained to God that he couldn't get anywhere near Job because God was always protecting him. You've built a hedge around him, Satan said. I, I can't get anywhere near the guy. That, that part of the story tells us that, that we have no idea how often God does things for us without our even knowing it. He protected Job from Satan without Job ever knowing that Satan was trying to attack. He had no information on that. In other words, we... We didn't see the danger that we're in that happens to us all the time. We didn't see the danger that we were in, so we didn't ask God to help us, but he moved on our behalf anyway. He didn't insist that we ask him for it, and he met the need that we knew nothing about. But what about those times when we are aware of the situation, when we are aware of the needs in our own lives or the the danger that we're in? What about those times when we are aware of the needs in the lives of others? Does that change the landscape of prayer? I mean, if we know about the need or the danger ahead of time, does God wait for us to pray before he'll act or move on our behalf? And if it does mean that, if it does mean that God will wait for us to pray before he moves on our behalf, doesn't that mean that God is limiting himself to our prayers? Well, it depends on how we see the story about Elijah. God waited for Elijah to pray intensely but I don't, mean that, I don't believe that that means that God was limiting himself to Elijah or and Elijah's prayer. Listen, God was not limiting himself. He was empowering Elijah. I love this idea. God was not limiting himself. He was empowering Elijah. And that is what blurs the, our, our answer. It blurs the question when we ask that question, who stopped the rain and then restarted the rain? We want a neat and tidy answer. Right? Uh, An answer that says either God stopped and started the rain or Elijah stopped and started the rain. But I think that James is clearly telling us here that we're on the wrong track when when we try to decide whether it was either God or Elijah. It wasn't either God or Elijah. It was both God and Elijah. And somebody signaled that to me a little earlier. It was both God and Elijah, who stopped and restarted the rain. God was working together with Elijah, and that means that God didn't enable Elijah. He empowered Elijah. I hope you know the difference between those two words. I work with an organization called Global Empowerment. We intentionally did not name the organization Global Enablement because of this very principle from God's Word. There's a vast difference between enabling someone and empowering them. And I know that uh, this is a long review. 
and it, it has been. I, and I'm sorry for that. The, this, the message isn't going to be as long as the review was, and the reason for that is that, that you, you have to put the golf ball on the tee before you can actually drive it. At least that's what they tell me. You can tell by the way I do that that I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to golf. But once we've got, now that we've got the ball on the tee, we can pull out the driver and get busy with this last bit of truth that James is going to share with us. And so if you would, don't, don't worry about this right now. I, I promise the message is a little shorter than the review. Would you stand with me as we read together aloud from James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Read with me if you would. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Thank you. You can take your seats with deep confidence that, that God always reveals His truth to us whenever we read His Word. I want to tell you a story from the life of Samson, though it would be more to correct that I to say, whoop, <laughs> don't know what's going on, I'm sorry. It would be more correct to say uh, that I want to tell you about the story about how his life ended. Samson lived a very chaotic life, and he was a guy who always loved pushing the limits, no question about that. You see, he was a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, not somebody from Nazareth. We talk about Jesus being a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Samson was actually a Nazarite, and that meant that he was supposed to live his life by, co by keeping three rules, three basic oaths, three basic promises. He was never to drink alcohol. He was never to touch anything that was dead, and he was never to cut his hair or shave his beard. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, per se. We're not having a... We're not going to become a dry county in Camden, in Camden County here. At my word, there's nothing wrong with those things per se, other than the fact that they were forbidden for Samson because of the Nazarite oath that he had taken. Samson was super strong. I'm sure you love the story as much as I do. And, I, and everyone assumed that he, he kept that strength. He was only strong as long as he kept those three oaths, those three promises. In fact, I have reason to believe that Samson thought that too. But then there was the time that he, he, he went out on that, he got, went on a week-long bender and got disgustingly drunk, but he didn't lose his strength. And there's another time when he touched the skeleton of a dead animal and, well, he didn't lose his strength that time either. The fact that he remained strong despite breaking two of the three net rules of a Nazarite may have been the thing that prompted him to tell his enemy that day that his hair was the secret of his strength. He might have been confident that it was all about him, that he's just a strong dude and able to do this, and whether or not he keeps his oath, well, he's good to go. His enemy then arranged for him to get a haircut, and, and this time it went badly. He tried to defend himself, but his strength was gone because God had finally taken himself out of the story of Samson's life. His enemies captured him, and put him in prison, but not before they put out both of his eyes. Sam, Samson languished in prison until one day when all the leaders of the enemy nation were gathered together in the temple of Dagon, their God. They sent for Samson and had him brought up from the dungeon to entertain them so that they could mock their formerly very powerful enemy. And as the story begins, Samson is there in his prison cell while the rulers of the Philistines are feasting 
in the temple of Dagon. And with that background, this is the story from God's word from Judges chapter 16. As I mentioned, the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to their god Dagon, and and they were celebrating the fact that their god had delivered their enemy, Samson, into their hands. They sent for Samson, and they forced him to to provide entertainment for the evening, and at the end of his performance, whatever that was, they had a young man lead Samson to the center of the temple where they were able to, to see him and to mock him in his blindness. There in the center of the temple... There were pillars that that carried the weight of the roof. And and Samson asked the young man to lead him over to the pillars that carried all of that weight. The temple was full to capacity at the time. And in fact, there were about 3,000 people on the roof, on the roof alone, who were watching Samson perform. Samson leaned against the pillars that supported the temple, and he began to pray. Sovereign Lord, Samson prayed, Please remember me. Please, God, strengthen me one last time. And for the sake of my two eyes, let me get revenge on my enemies. He then put one hand on one of the pillars and the other on the other. And and Samson shouted aloud, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent down and pushed with all his might. And the temple crumbled. In response to Samson's strength. Samson's brothers and his whole family. Went down to the temple of Dagon to recover his body. And take him home. And they buried him in the tomb of Manoah. His father. And that's the story. From God's word. Now I don't want to wear out a question that I asked earlier. But who pushed down the temple of Dagon? Did God push it down? Or did Samson push it down? We could do the dance here, but we're going to end up at the same place. God could have pushed down the temple without Samson's help. But God didn't push down the temple without Samson's help. And once again, God didn't limit himself to Samson. God chose instead to empower Samson in response to Samson's earnest prayer. Remember the story. Samson prayed like it all depended on him. Like it all depended on God. And then he pushed like it all depended on him. He prayed earnestly. And then the scripture says that he bowed himself and pushed with all his might to bring down that temple. And we won't take the time to mine any more examples from the scripture. But trust me when I say that this is a pattern that goes cover to cover in God's word. When an ordinary person finds him or herself in the hands of an extraordinary God, amazing things happen, and supernatural power is unleashed on the natural world. That's God's pattern. That's been God's pattern for generations. That's God's pattern today. And here at the end of James' epistle, our older brother James is giving us some advice that may not turn us into superheroes, But if we listen to what he has to say, we'll understand that God has given every one of us a superpower. I'm not talking about the gifts of the Spirit right now. He's given every one of us a superpower that we can use to save people from death. And now all that starts with accountability. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you may remember that I told a story about a friend of mine who was a missionary living on the flight and and school base there in the Philippines. 
Our family lived on that same flight base during that time. And that guy and I spent every Monday night, all through the year, because we would get these football tape, tapes, you know, football games, and, and, uh, and we spent every Monday night watching football together. It was just he and I. That we, we, most of the group didn't care about football. But we always had lively conversations along the way. That all came to an abrupt end when the leadership team there on the field came to the flight and school base and told my friend that he and his family would have to leave the Philippines and head back to the States because he had been hiding an habitual sin that was destroying the lives of children and families there in the Philippines. When he could no longer hide his sin, we all became aware of what he was and what he had done, what he had become, and, and all that remained in his life was the death and destruction that he had left in his wake everywhere he went. And I shared with you last week that the entire situation was heartbreaking for everyone who was anywhere near the blast zone when it all exploded. But as I said last week, what I found most distressing personally was that that sin was growing in my friend's hearts, my friend's heart all that time, all during that time. And he never said anything. He said nothing. My friend ignored the principle that James taught us way back in chapter 1. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When it is full grown, sin gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. My friend thought that he was hiding that simple, sinful desire in his heart. But in reality, he had planted that sinful desire in his heart. And when it grew to full size, it caused death everywhere he went. And that's why last week, James asked us to confess our sins to one another and to make ourselves accountable to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm aware that you may feel that, that sharing your hidden, secret, habitual sin with another believer may sound dreadfully embarrassing to you. You may feel so embarrassed with the idea of, of talking about your sin that you think you'd rather die. I've heard people use that phrase. I'd rather die than do that, but I'm asking you today to think about my friend. Which do you think would have been greater? The embarrassment that he would have felt if he had shared that secret sinful desire or the shame that he ultimately felt when he was sent home and left so many families in shreds because he didn't make himself accountable to a brother in Christ. He didn't make himself accountable, and, and instead he allowed his sin to grow to the point where it took away his ministry, destroyed his family, and eventually caused the death of his wife. She died of a broken heart. He avoided the embarrassment of sharing his sinful desire with a brother in Christ, but, but then he, left his, he let his sin become a full-grown habit that killed everything that was important to him. And so I'll ask again, which is better, to share your secret, hidden, sinful desire and to be embarrassed as you share it or to wait until your sin has grown to a full-grown habit in your life that leads to the death and destruction of everything that you hold dear? And I don't want to belabor this point, and I don't want to leave you feeling anguished and broken, so let's come at this from the angle that James came at it. James is going to put you in touch with your superpower this morning, and he's going to help you know how to use it. You know that every superhero struggles with how to use his powers when he finally discovers that he has them. And so, thankfully, James is going to cue us in on that. Look at verses 19 and 20 of James chapter 5. 
My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let me say before I say anything else, I don't believe that James is talking about sharing the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel. James wants us to do that. But in this context, he's talking to us about each other, about taking care of each other within the fellowship. This whole thing of getting someone else turned around comes in the context of what James said last week. We should confess our sins to one another and pray earnestly for one another. And the end result of all that will be that we'll be healed of our spiritual heart sickness, our spiritual brokenness. But what does that mean? Well, let's just say that, that I realize that I've been out of sorts and, and even angry lately. And it occurs to me that my wife and kids are paying the price for my sour and, and bitter spirit and attitude. I can see it in my daughter's eyes. And, and my son has been acting out lately because he's tired of, of me being angry and pushing him away all the time. My wife is heartbroken, but she doesn't know what to say or how to say it to help me get past my anger to the point where I can build powerfully into her life and into the lives of my children. And, and truth be told, I want to stop being so angry. And I want to put my wife and children, uh, I want to pull them into my heart instead of constantly pushing them away. But I, I just don't know how. So what should I do? Well, James has been very clear. I should look for a brother in Christ whom I trust. And embarrassing though it may be, I, I should clear the air with him and, and confess this shortcoming in my life before it destroys the people that I love. And what will my friend do with all that? Well, he's not going to judge me because he was here this morning. He's not going to judge me. Instead, he'll remind me that God loves me just the way I am. And he'll tell me that no one is more interested than God is in seeing me get to the other side of this, putting this away. And then, and then, he'll use his superpower. And he'll tell me that he's going to pray earnestly for me for as long as it takes for me to find my way out of the anger before I lose my family. And then he's going to walk by my side and he's going to help to carry my burden by holding me accountable. And he will pray earnestly and hold me accountable until the light comes back into my family's eyes because they see that my anger is gone and they know how much I love them. And listen, if you don't struggle with anger, then don't opt out of the program because I didn't mention your particular secret habitual sin. You know I'm talking to everybody here. We're all struggling with something. Men, if you have something in your life, find a brother in Christ whom you can trust and ask him to hold you accountable and pray earnestly for you so that you can finally put that thing behind you. Ladies, if you have something going on in your life, find a sister in Christ whom you can trust and ask her to hold you accountable and pray earnestly for you so that you can put that thing behind you. And just so you know, it, it, it works the same way in those times when I have a sinful habit eating away at my life, but I don't see that it's there. Sometimes we don't. For example, my friend may come over to my house for dinner and he sees the way I treat my wife and the way I'm treating my kids. And you know what he's going to do if he's a faithful man? He's going to confront me. And when he does, 
I'll confess to him that I didn't see that sin in my life before, but I do now. I see it now. In other words, I confess my sin to him and ask him to pray for me and walk beside me as I deal with this secret sin. And my friend will then use his superpower to save me from the death of my marriage and my family as he holds me accountable and earnestly prays for me every day. Please understand that God's not limiting himself to my brother in Christ. God is empowering my brother in Christ to turn me and to save me from death, just like any self-respecting, super-powered superhero would do. That's what superheroes do. But there's more. James says that when my brother gets me turned around, there will be two results. My brother will save me from death, and he will cover over a multitude of sins. That's what it says in in 520. Please notice that it doesn't say that he will cover up a multitude of my sins. It says that he will cover over a multitude of my sins. You remember my friend from the flight base? What if he had shared and confessed his sin and to it with his brother in Christ while it was still a manageable, sinful desire? Well, the answer to that question is profound. If he had shared and confessed that with a, with a brother in Christ when it was all just a manageable, sinful desire, his brother in Christ would have been able to pray diligently for him and hold him accountable. And the end result, listen to this, the end result of all that might have been that my friend would have turned away from that sinful desire. And that might mean that he would still be in ministry today, that his wife might still be alive. And his family might still be intact. In other words, he would have been saved from the kind of death that comes from sin that is full grown. And this for me, this next thing by far is the most important truth. He would never have destroyed so many people with his sinful behavior. He wouldn't have had to worry about covering up his sin because his sin would have been covered over. In other words, he wouldn't have had to worry about covering up his sin because his life-destroying sin would never have happened. He would have turned away from that if he had simply asked. Earnest prayer and accountability would have set him free, and he would not have chosen to habitually sin and destroy the lives of other people. And that would have set free the hundreds of people who are still to this day, all these years later, still to this day feeling the impact of his sin. And all of that goodness would have been the result of the accountability and earnest prayer that someone offered on his behalf. That's what I mean when I say that we all have a superpower that can save other people from death. And with those kind of profoundly good results on the line, I'm standing here to say, God, sign me up. Sign me up. Help me to find the people who can turn me around. Save my life and cover over my sin before I destroy the lives of other people. And Lord, help me to be the man who will turn other people around. Pray earnestly for them and cover over their sin before they destroy other people. And hey, what do you suppose would happen in our church if we were all to embrace this truth that James has taught us these past two weeks? I'll tell you what, if we got a hold of this truth, put it into practice, and we were all being honest about the messes in our lives, and we were all praying for one another and holding one another accountable, then it would be clear to anyone who was anywhere near us 
that we as a body had stopped going to church and had started being the church because that's what the church does in a dark world. So, hey, you may not be a superhero, but I can assure you that you have a superpower. And I'm challenging all of us to use our superpower to turn lives around right here and right now. Don't forget, that's what any self-respecting, superpowered superhero would do. In closing, let me read the passage from last week together with the passage from this week. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we bless your name today for your desire to empower us. Help us to remember that Jesus' challenge to his followers was uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. God, we so want to, to have the privilege of carrying the yoke with you so that our lives are empowered, so that we are empowered to reach into the lives of other people. God, help us to be honest and open about this, these messes in our lives. And help us to stop being embarrassed and hiding and to just take the step that's necessary to swallow our pride and be honest about the mess so that someone can pray for us and hold us accountable so that we can be saved from death so that we can be saved from death and that our sins will be covered over because they never happen. Thank you, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Last time in James, apart from a review and a lot more dynamic stuff going on next week, we're headed out there. And I, for you know, the first Sunday in a long time, I haven't asked you about people out there. I'm asking you to just take a quick look around would you do that? Just look around. You know, you're not supposed to look around in church, but go ahead and, and feel free. Look around. Uh, every single face in this room here represents someone who has needs. And you have solutions. You have answers to those questions. So let's start caring about one another deeply. Let's get people turned around. You're headed out there. God bless you all and all that remains for me. It says your coach to say, ready? Go get him, Potter's house.